Hello, I'm Anne Goudsmith. I'm a member of the board here at the Irish Cultural Centre in Hammersmith, London. For the past 25 years, the centre has delivered the most diverse Irish cultural and educational programme outside Ireland. And I'm delighted to welcome you to the final episode of our Digital Literary Festival. But just before we begin, a few thank yous are in order. Firstly, to our sponsors, in particular to Mary Clancy for her generous donation in the memory of her late parents, Michael and Kathleen. Thank you to the companies who have supported us from the building 245 Hammersmith. And as always, we at the ICC appreciate the support we receive from the Emigrant Support Programme in the Department of Foreign Affairs. I would also like to thank the two publishers who have partnered with us for the festival, Nomad Books in Fulham and New Island Books in Ireland. In particular, of course, I must thank all 10 writers who have participated in the festival. I do hope you've managed to catch some, if not all, of the interviews. And if you've missed any, don't worry, they will remain permanently on our website and on our digital channel. But of course, our festival could not have taken place without the hard work of our four interviewers who are joining me now. Anne Flaherty, a journalist, Keith Hopper, an academic, and Carlo Gebler and Dermot Bolger, both of whom have participated in the festival as writers and as literary broadcasters. Had this been a normal live festival, there would of course have been the opportunity for various chats in various parts of the building at the Irish Cultural Centre. So we thought it would be a good idea to try to duplicate the uh, concept of a live uh, panel at the very end of a festival. So I ask you to imagine that instead of watching us on your screens, to imagine that instead we are all at the Irish Cultural Centre in Hammersmith. It's a bit of a stretch, I know. Finally, I have one last request to make. As you know, the Irish Cultural Centre is a charity and we rely on grants, on sponsorship and on donations in order to survive. If you have enjoyed our interviews and you are able to make a donation, however small, we would be very grateful. Please visit our website for details on how to do that. Thank you. So I'll start off, first of all, with you, Anne. Okay, well, um, I will start off by talking about Emma Donoghue, um, whose uh, novel, The Pull of the Stars, was very interesting because of the timing. It, uh, Emma had actually just finished this novel, coincidentally, just before the, the lockdown arrived, and it was rushed out by her publishers. It's set in uh, Dublin Maternity Hospital in 1918, and it's uh, narrated by uh, the central character, Julia, who's a nurse. And it's set in a very small maternity ward where she's charged with looking after these pregnant women who have come in with the flu. Um, so in a sense, the first interesting thing about it was the timing and uh, talking to Emma herself about how she felt about, in a way, going through two lockdowns. Uh, there was the lockdown of writing her book and writing about a lockdown. And then there was her own personal lockdown where she was based in London, uh, Ontario. Um, so. 
the most memorable thing, I suppose, for me about discussing the book was uh, in looking at how Emma approaches writing a historical novel and how she starts off with uh, not just the idea, um, but how she gets into the characters' heads uh, in a time period where obviously people are long dead um, and how she approaches their mindset and how she goes to where the historians, you know, can't approach. Um, and also how she brings in huge elements of, of politics into the story as well. While it's essentially a, a story set in a maternity unit, it also brings in lots of other uh, aspects of the society, the um, the political turmoil of the time, 1918, uh, the um, Republican movement, the uh, uh, situation relating to women, you know, and the church, and how she brings all those elements together. And we moved from that then to talking about her personal life, how, why she left Ireland and uh, how she um, views Ireland now from the perspective of somebody living abroad. And we also talked about her childhood. And I found it particularly interesting to talk about her mother, because while her father is a very eminent writer and academic, there has been very little written about her mother. What she did discover was that her mother, Frances, who, who reared eight children, um, had kept diaries throughout their whole childhood together, you know, you know, their whole life together. And Frances gave Emma her diaries and said, if you ever need to use them in your novels, um, if there's anything of any interest, feel free to take them. And I, it started Emma thinking about, um, I suppose, the life of her mother as an Irish woman in the 50s and 60s, how she had to leave her job as an Erlingus hostess when she got married, how she had to raise these children. And, and she had to put all her own um, aspirations for writing or for any other sort of life behind until she had raised a family. And then she went actually into a whole different world, studied for two or three MAs and became, you know, in, in, incredibly adventurous, uh, traveling all over the place. Um, so I suppose that that was, you know, the discussion with Emma Donoghue, uh, a very well-known writer. And then talking to Liz Nugent, completely polar opposite, because um, Liz, Liz's book, um, Our Little Cruelties, is psychological thriller. And Liz is very... Um, engaged, I suppose, with, with the psychological lives of her characters. And this book is set in Dublin. It tells the story of three rather unpleasant brothers who have grown up in the 60s and 70s. And really it is about um, a subject that is very well loved of Irish writers, which is the dysfunctional Irish family. And really it is, of course, all back to their relationship with their mammy. And uh, she's a very good storyteller. Um, you know, she, it's a real page turner. And what was interesting uh, about the discussion with Liz was to talk to her about the issues that she brings up in terms of mental health. Uh, um, she um, doesn't agree with easy classifications of mental health, although a lot of her characters have addiction problems or have depression. And that, you know, that was very interesting to talk to her about that. And then the third writer was a very little known fellow called Dermot Bulger. Hadn't heard of him before, but I'm told he's been around for a long time. Anyway, uh, this was a great collection of Dermot's uh, short stories called Secrets Never Told. And uh, these stories have been written uh, down through the years and he's collected them together. Um, 
all of human life is there. They're very, very engaging, uh, very easy to read. Everything uh, from, you know, a story about a former lover of Roger Casement at his funeral to a novelist at a book launch who's confronted with a secret. And what I found very nice about talking to Dermot was to um, go back over his own uh start as a writer um, going through the tragedy of losing his mother as a very young boy and getting involved in writing and right up to the uh, the 70s when he founded the Raven Arts Press and the sort of um, you know in energy I suppose of the time in 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 trying to bring about uh, um, a, a, an independent publishing house which which uh, would give opportunities to emerging Irish writers and in fact has given fantastic opportunities to some of our biggest and best writers down through the years. Certainly return to that publishing aspect um, of Dermot's career later on. Um, that's, I mean, I think those, the description of those three books um, in themselves gives some indication of the variety of Irish writing that we've been talking about. We have historical fiction, we have a crime fiction, and we have a, a collection of, of short stories. So in a way, that's mm. almost a, a microcosm for the festival, those three. But we still have some more to come. So I'm going to turn now to you, Carlo. And um, you interviewed four of the authors and four books for the festival. So I'd love to hear just what, um, you know, what your sort of summary of, of what you feel you got from, from, those, from your experience of interviewing those four writers. The first person I interviewed was, uh, the first book I discussed was a Peregrine, Colin McCann's book, uh, which is about a, or an Israeli peace activist and a Palestinian ex-fatter peace activist in Israel. It's a novel about real people. It's packed with incredibly interesting content about everything from the difference between a Palestinian and an Israeli number plate and, and how and why it matters to the friendship of these two men and what they and their families have had to endure. I suppose it's a book about the elusive nature of truth. In fact, I would say all the books that I engaged with for this series are about the elusive nature of truth. In this case, the truth is the truth of what has happened to the Palestinians. They have lost and their suffering is incalculable. It, it, it's, it's a book that I think people should read because of the in, it, huge amount of insight and information that it provides you with. It's also a very subtle artifact. It's, it's, it's a novel, but it's about real people. So it's right on the border between truth and, and fiction. Then the, the second book I did was Roddy Doyle's Love, which is ostensibly two men talking. And one of them has left his wife and gone off with someone else. However, the further they talk, the more you realize that their understanding of the nature of experience and what it is that has happened to them and is currently happening to them is very, very difficult to get hold of. It's about the slippery nature of, of truth. The third book 
was uh, Sinead Gleeson's The Art of the Glimpse. It's an anthology, 100 Irish short stories. I suppose what that book really shows you is, I, I thought about Adam Phillips, the, the, the psychiatrist, when I was looking for a way to sum up the book. Phillips said, you know, psychoanalysis is very good when it helps you to understand trauma, but it's so much better when it gets you to understand just how strange we are. And that's what I would say Gleason's book does. It showed you how wide and ample and weird Irish society is. It's full of all sorts of things you didn't know about. I mean, it's got, you know, it's got priests and it's got rain and it's got Hibernian furniture, furnishing, but it's got, it's got a lot about people that you haven't met before. And then the fourth book I dealt with, uh, the fourth book I talked to someone about was, and that someone was a man called John Banville, and the book was Snow, which is ostensibly a thriller, ostensibly, but like all thrillers, it's not really, well, the crime is the pretext. It's what happens to the detective as he is investigating a man called Strafford. And it's a book about Irish 20th century history, really. And again, the elusive nature of the truth, though in this case, the Irish state is repressing the truth or shoving the truth under the carpet. It's the truth about the way the church uh, created a gulag um, into which it put all the women and children who were regarded as surplus or deficient or derelict. And the consequences of this, of the suffering of all these people who were in this vast Irish gulag of industrial schools and other institutions, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, right up to the 80s. And I've spoken from the pulpit long enough. My sermon now ceases. Ceases. Thank you, Carlo. Well, with the brief description of those four books, I mean, going from one um, set in the Middle East to a, a collection of 100 short stories, um, all I can say is that the plot thickens. That's um, seven of our books. And we've, we've, we've covered, you know, you can see already begin to see if you've watched some of our the um, sessions so far. Um, you might have watched some, you might not have watched them all. But I'm hoping that um, this discussion is giving you just a bit of a feel for what's out there in Irish fiction at the moment. And um, I'm now going to turn to um, Dermot, who interviewed Carlo, because Carlo is publishing in November um, well, I'd better let Dermot talk about it. Dermot. Well, I've known Carlo. I've known Carlo since before Carlo was a writer. Since when, I, I first met Carlo in the home of Francis George when he was a documentary maker uh, many, many years ago in the uh, 1980s. And I followed his career with great interest and great admiration. I really admire him as a writer. Now, whenever I meet him, I only just slag him. So nobody ever tell him this, you know. But, but I've, <laughs> I've always been found fascinating. And I like that his old school work. So... What I found interesting about the book was was uh, Carlo's not a man to prevaricate, but this book it was uh, 667 years in the making because it was a response to the pandemic that's uh, afflicting us all. And that response was to go back to the Decameron that was written 667 years ago, which is 100 stories set in a, um, or told by a group of 10 people, seven young seven young women, three young men in a secluded villa outside Florence who are uh, there to escape from the Black Death 
uh, and and they uh, basically keep each other alive and they keep the spirit of human hope alive by telling stories. And the stories are quite dark at times and the stories uh, are quite um, erotic at times and they're, they're quite gruesome at times and they're very, very humane. And they're, all, they're sort of like the bedrock of modern literature because everybody has stolen all these plots from the book ever since, which is perfectly fair because the author of the book stole all the plots to begin with. Yeah. Uh, I actually found that it was... Uh, also, it was that whole... Um, of somebody coming from the merchant class and mocking the clergy. It's a very, very anti-clerical book. Uh, and it was passed around among the merchant class uh, who, who, who took great delight in seeing nobility being mocked. So I found that it was a book. It told me a lot about the 13th century, but also told me a lot about the uh, perseverance of the human spirit. And also told me a lot about Carlo because it was written in an incredibly short time. And I remember being with Anthony Cronin, a very, very great poet, in Halifax, Nova Scotia. And he came back and he said to me, we were in his room, and he said, I've just been talking to the, the widow of a great writer. And I said, what was the writer's name? And he said, oh, I didn't get his name. And I said, well, how did you know he was a great writer? And she said, because he wrote poetry in the morning and in the afternoon he wrote whatever needed to be written to survive. And when the Queen came to, it's a Halifax, Nova Scotia, or it was something in New Brunswick, he wrote the speech of the mayor welcoming the Governor-General and the Queen. He wrote the speech of the Governor-General thanking the mayor and welcoming the Queen. And he wrote the speech of the Queen thanking the mayor and the Governor-General. And he was a Republican. And that is a great writer. <laughs> so, so, just by so like Tony's definition, Carlo is a great writer because actually sits down and does things and there's no prevarication involved so to actually uh be faced with a pandemic to actually have to turn your have your life turned upside down and to then go and say how, how do i tackle this uh and to say i'm going to go back to this bedrock book i'm going to remake that book i'm going to do it in an incredibly short space of time so there are all those qualities that i've always admired in carlo's work as a memoirist as a novelist as somebody able to shift between different forms and I think that is a sign of a true writer so it was it was and it's always great fun talking to Carlo anyway and I got paid <laughs> what's not thank to you. like <laughs> thank you Dermot I think you better stop there or Carlo won't be able to get out of that room he's in his head will have got so big and <laughs> um, so now we'll turn to to Keith and Keith interviewed um, two writers uh, one, Donald Ryan, who I suppose we used to describe Donald as a, a rising star, but I suspect he now is, can be considered a risen star. And uh, Michelle Gallen, um, at, who is our debut author of the festival. So over to you, Keith. Yeah, it, it was really interesting to interview them both within an hour of each other. The rising star, the risen star. Uh, and it was interesting because I was on holidays and I read the books in one go, you know, reading them together. So it was lovely to have the conversations. Um, Michelle's book, uh, Big Girl, Small Town, uh, it's been described as a cross between Milkman and Dairy Girls, and I think that's very accurate, very, very funny. Um, it came out earlier this year. Donald's novel, Strange Flowers, you said, is a sixth novel. Um, and the thing that struck me from talking to them both is that, aside from their, their talent, their capacity for, for hard work, uh, is resilience. You know, uh, Michelle talked about, in 2005, she took a month off work, she wrote the first draft of 70,000 words in the month. Um, it took her three years to finish it. And then she spent another 10 years trying to find a publisher. And looking back over Donald's career, I mean, he seems to be around a long time, but you know, it, it, he, again, a very hardworking, prolific writer. 
his first two novels, The Spinning Heart and The Thing About December, he said they were rejected 47 times between them before he, he found a publisher. So I thought, well, there's a lesson for all budding and even seasoned writers, you know, you, you just have to stick at it. Resilience. Um, it was also interesting discussing the craft of writing with, with the two of them. Um, because I've seen some onstage interviews at festivals and have done some with writers that it didn't really work for me, you know, where the interviewer maybe spends too much time prying into biography and not enough focusing on the art of fiction, which is obviously where writers feel more comfortable, you know. So I just say, tell us a little bit about yourself and it's up to them how much they want to say. But um, they really talk off, I felt, when, when you talk about craft. Uh, and there's interesting formal contrasts in terms of the point of view, the structure, the scope. But what I really liked, was inter interested in was their commitment to the to the characters. I mean, they really went for it. Um, so Big Girl, Small Town, uh, the point of view of Magella, she's turning 27 when we meet her, quiet, quietly strong young woman, works in a chip shop in this little town in Northern Ireland. Um, it's structured over a week, her working week. Um, and it begins to dawn slowly on the reader, uh, it's very cleverly done, that she's on the autistic spectrum, not immediately apparent. Uh, I was reminded of Mark Haddon's great novel, you know, the, the curious incident of the, the dog in the nighttime. But Magella's a, a terrific character. I asked um, Michelle at the end, would she revive her? And she said, yeah, that voice was still very much with her. Um, but it's laugh out loud funny. I can't remember the last time I laughed so loud at a novel. And I bought it for my wife and I bought it for my daughter. And they said, yes, this is a great piece of, of, of comedy. Um, but what was interesting talking to Michelle, she said in the course of her research, she discovered how girls is often misdiagnosed or even left undiagnosed uh, compared to boys. And of course, that has serious implications for how those girls grow up and interact with others. Uh, so that was news to me. I didn't, I didn't realize that you know something like that was gendered in the way that uh, Michelle outlined. So it's very funny. It deals with serious issues, and I, the residual trauma of the troubles kind of thrums away in the background, and, and uh, important in, in that sense. Uh, Donald Ryan's Strange Flowers is a is a different animal. Big Girl, Small Town takes place over a week. This is a saga that takes place over nearly 30 years. Um, but again, the commitment to character was striking. Uh, a, a couple, Paddy and Kit, small rural area, Tipperary, uh, their daughter, their seven-year-old daughter disappears, comes back five years later from London, not spoiling anything, but bringing in tow uh, a husband who's black and uh, a child. And um, the father figure in the novel, Paddy, is a wonderful creation. He really reminded me of my my own grandfather, you know, this kind of typical stoic, uh, quiet, gentle, compassionate. Um, and talking to Donald, it, it emerged, and he, he, he was, you know, I'm still emotional about it, that Paddy is a tribute to his own father who passed away just a couple of years ago. And so the kind of textured nuances that go into that character made for a very mature piece of writing. I, I think it is by a long shot, his best work. I went back and I reread Spinning Heart and I thought, yeah, you can see all the potential, but the potential is now kind of flourished in, in, in this. I, I thought of McGarren, I thought of uh, William Trevor. So I, I think novels felt very contemporary. Uh, they're both very frank about sex and sexuality, which was refreshing. Uh, there's a strong sense of the, the time period, um, but also a very strong um, sense of place. I mean, obviously that's always been important in Irish writing. But I thought that both novels looked very tenderly at that, you know, the strange allure of, of small communities. It's suffocating, but it's also seductive. You can never fully disengage. 
Uh, and the last thing I would say really that I was struck by was I asked them both the same question because I, I, I really enjoyed seeing this. The sharp awareness of qualities, which I don't think is always the case in contemporary Irish fiction. Um, in Big Girl, Small Town, Magella is aware of structural inequalities. She sees things because of her autistic vision. She sees things in a very simple, blunt, fascinating way. Um, so the memories of how, you know, at school kids are in classes, uh, how poor kids were picked on and ridiculed by teachers. I mean, that chimed at my own experience. Um, and in Strange Flowers, there's a, a, a brilliant moment at the start. It's only half a page, but it's this terrible clash between the gentle father figure, Paddy, and the arrogant son of the big house who he has to work for and who's, you know, he, he lives on their land. Um, and it, it was shocking. It was unexpected. And when I raised this with Donald, he, he said wisely, I think, that class distinctions in Ireland are often subtle to the point of invisibility. So it was good to see those fault lines being made visible and addressed in such a kind of confident and complex manner. So, uh, yeah, it was great reading them jointly. Uh, it, it gave a really good sense of contemporary writing, yeah. I suppose I'm, I'm thinking we, we at the, um, the Irish Cultural Centre, we're now just celebrating our, our 25th um, anniversary. So on the one hand, we're looking at what's happening today in Ireland and what's happening in Irish literature. But it also, you can't help casting your mind back to 25 years ago and what was happening then. And uh, coincidentally, um, Emma Donoghue, who, you know, who was um, interviewed by Anne, um, Emma was causing a huge stir in sort of 1994 and 1996 with the... Um, publication of her two novels, um, Stir Fry and Hood. And um, Keith, you've just mentioned sort of the, the theme of sexuality and, and it, you know, it, it appears in, in most of these books in some form or another. And I suppose um, I can't help wondering, are there any taboos left now? You know, we've come, Ireland is, is a different country now, but it strikes me also that in 25 years ago, we were talking about a new Ireland then, um, we had Emma, we had Colm Tavine and, uh, and so on and so forth. And we're now again, um, it seems we're talking about a new Ireland. So I just would be really interested to hear your views on, I suppose, either, you know, the new Ireland that was then, you know, it has changed. You know, where, where, where are we now? And where, where, where are we going? Um, are, is there anything left that we can't talk about? Because we, it seems to me that at the moment, maybe we can talk about anything in, in, in Irish fiction. There's no, there's no, is there anything that publishers wouldn't publish? Um, so, so I suppose maybe, maybe Dermot, I'll ask, I'll ask you to kick off on that if you wouldn't mind. I do remember, um, your centre starting, I do remember Emma's book coming out. I remember actually being in London 25 years ago with Colin Tobin and I think Joe O'Connor and Emma. We were on the radio and Emma was saying how she had been denounced um, at mass uh, some, but possibly Marion and we were all incredibly envious and we were asking her in great detail how do you get denounced at mass because we hadn't heard anybody <laughs> thought it was deeply unfair I mean when the uh, the Bishop of Limerick used to be around these things were possible uh, this is Bishop who was long, long dead you know but so Ireland has at that time at the time say uh, and Enright was walking in RTE and she was making a terrible programme uh, called Nighthawks and there used to be like caricatures of Lera. And so if you show that now, there's a generation who simply wouldn't know who Eamon Devalera was, because in those, when that sort of generation that sort of broke through 25 years ago, we had very definitive things we wanted to tear down. We had very definitive, like, you, you know, um, figures and figures we meant to look up to and figure out respect. And I, th I think that whole war was, world was swept away. So I think 
and there was a sense, we had a sense of uh, here was a new generation coming to reshape Ireland. And I think hopefully every generation has that. And I, I think there's a new generation of writers coming through who are usually exciting. Uh, and they are knocking away the taboos of another generation. So I think, I think in every society, there are things you can talk about. And in every society, there are things you can talk about. And, every, and I think that a writer should always be at the forefront of being slightly ahead of the things that you can talk about. I wanted to just say, Carlo, um, have you any observations on, on that, the sort of the gap between 20, now and 25 years ago? There are two Irelands. There's the Ireland of the 26 counties and there's the Ireland of the six counties. And the most, for me, outstanding story in The Art of the Glimpse was Eugene McCabe's Cancer, which is a story about the troubles, sectarianism, and just what a mess this place was as a result of partition. And nothing ostensibly happens in it. There are helicopters and soldiers and there's casual um, nastiness. Nobody dies. But you know that a lot of people on the outside the story are going to die. And I think that um, all of that, I was reading this, I suddenly thought, oh my goodness me, I'd forgotten about all of that. How incredibly powerful and true what a genius Eugene McCabe was And I think that the sorts of things he was writing about are still taboo. I mean, this is still a culture where if you say to us, you know, if you say to members of the DUP, do you know what? It really wasn't very nice to be a Catholic. I mean, it really, really wasn't very nice to be a Catholic. They sort of go, oh, we're over that, or it's in the past, or get back in your box, or, you know, it's, we really, really don't acknowledge it. When the Good Friday Agreement had its anniversary uh, last year, no, two years ago, um, certain political parties claimed credit for it, people who had voted against it. And we live in a strange culture of omerta in the North. We actually still really don't want to talk about things. The Bally Murphy inquests are still... Bally Murphy, the people were shot 50, over 50 years ago. The inquests are still chundering through, you know. So I would say that um, certainly in regard to what has happened up here and what had happened up here, there, has been, there hasn't really been a reckoning. Thank you. I want to come back to that in a minute, Carlo, but I just want to ask um, Anne, because Anne, you were a journalist in Northern Ireland at... Um, at a particular point in the troubles um do you have do you have anything to say about that do you think you know that there are still two islands do do we have i mean i suppose also do we have two different kinds of fiction whether it's northern irish fiction and fiction of the republic i mean that's i suppose as a literary event we we should be thinking i mean are there are there different concerns well I think obviously there are different concerns, but one one of the things that struck me in the in the in you know talking about the last twenty five years was was the emergence of, of of women writers, and that's not to say that there weren't always women writers in Ireland. We could go right back. There were 
being denounced from the pulpit. Uh, long, no, Brian was denounced from the pulpit long before Emma. But in talking about uh, the emergence of, of younger women writers recently, I see a new confidence, I think, in the way that they express themselves. And if you're talking about Northern Ireland, it, it reminds me of two books that I read last year that I was very struck by. One was by Jan Carson, uh, The Firestarters, which was um, from the uh, perspective of the working class loyalist community. And then the other was Anna Burns Milkman, which is from the uh, working class Republican uh, community. And both of those, while they're set in Northern Ireland and very specific areas of Northern Ireland, in many ways, in telling of, 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 of the experience, they are universal, you know. And I suppose that that... In the last twenty-five years, um, the growth of of the of the younger women, you know, and and the growth of, oh, I suppose, the confidence that they have now to experiment, in particularly in language, um, Sarah Baum and people like that, it, it almost transcends, I think, kind of the the idea of national literature, if you see what I mean. Uh, do we actually have a national literature which is North and South? Mm-hmm. Or are we are we past that in a way? That's the yeah, question that, that I'd ask. That yes, that's that's a, that's a very good point because in a way so much of this work I guess we would say has has universal appeal. The subjects are they're general. They're 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 about the human condition as as Carlo pointed exactly. out. Exactly. And the complexities of of you know the new world order after COVID and after Brexit and after the Celtic Tiger. Um, I mean, th- those are sort of exercising uh, writers' minds now, I think, rather than North-South divide. I could be wrong and I'm open to challenge on that. Would you have a view on that, Keith, um, with your, your experience in sort of lecturing in literature? and? Yeah, very much. A lot's changed since the, the stir over stir fry, I think, you know. Um, I think things are improving. It'd be nice, perhaps... First of all, to see gay characters appearing in novels where they're gayness is just a fact, not the driving force. Uh, it was interesting talking to Michelle Gallen about this, you know, her debut novel. When I asked her about who her role models were growing up, um, she was still clearly angry at the lack of female writers to emulate. She said, you know, she discovered Sylvia Plath and that got her thinking that it was possible to write. Um, that certainly changed for the better. In 25 years' time, I think the number of women writers we have now are clearly going to influence new generation which is great i think that one of the things i said already about michelle's novel um, is the way that the legacy of the troubles thrums away in the background and the color everything her uncle and her father were involved in the ira her father has disappeared and it's never clear whether it's because her alcoholic mother drove him away and he's gone to australia or whether he has been one of the disappeared and i thought that was nice the way she's just allowing the reader a bit of room to remember just how violent this landscape was because you know I have younger students now and when you talk about the troubles you have to give them a little history lesson because it's not of their generation you know it's not time and uh, it, it, it feels that feels strange to me having grown up on the border and thinking well we'll never see any peace in our time and I had moved to England by the time the uh, Good Friday Agreement was signed so I, I thought it's interesting too the way that women writers I think are responding to this challenge uh, because the epigraph to Michelle's novel is from Anna Burns's and uh, it's very striking and it is about that epigraph is about the fear ceasefire 
has made us complacent, that we've taken it for granted. And what would happen if, God forbid, something was triggered? And, you know, when you talk to English people here, you know, in, in, in London, um, there's no discussion during Brexit of this, of the if there was possibility of the peace process being destabilised, then it should it should just have ended. And um, I, I think that is, that, that is true. I like the way that that troubling shadow is is there in in these fictions. So I think women are responding very well. Um, I think it's it's a great development. Uh, I, I think it's the best thing I've seen since the other Dermot. Uh, Dermot Higley wrote, I think, two novels about the troubles, shadows, and a goat song. And I think what made it interesting he addresses the border. He's a border writer, so he you know we and in the south and shows in which the conflict has affected both sides. And I think that's good. It's not just limited to the violence in the north, it's about going up on the border in the south too, you know. Okay, so we think that there isn't, are we, are we saying that there isn't two different Irish fictions? There's there's a, an Irish fiction which which can absorb the two, the two, the two parts and that it's, it's universal. And would that, would that perhaps explain the, um, the sort of the current thinking of this golden age of, of Irish prose writing? Because there does seem to be, certainly in the past, even in as recently as five years ago, the view that, um, I mean, there's just so much Irish fiction being published at the moment. Mm. Um, I convene a, a, a book club at the Irish Cultural Centre, of which Anne is a member. And I mean, it's almost impossible to keep up with, um, never mind read some of the old classics, if you want to keep up with what's coming out at the moment. Um, it's just coming here, there and everywhere. So it does feel very exciting. Um, and I'm just wondering in terms of, you know, the in, the whole the whole concept of the industry of publishing has that has that has that altered is that making it easier for or harder in fact for for writers to get published do we you know you, you we hear about writers getting um uh you know there's a real pressure to to sell to sell books very quickly and that maybe isn't necessarily nurturing new talent and um, will will all these new writers be given the opportunity to fail which perhaps you know, in the old, in previously that wasn't allowed. Carlo, would you like to comment on that? Um, well, in terms of, you know, whether it's a national literature or not, we're all Europeans now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, the work has, you know, it's, it's um, if you look over the last 25 years, the reach and the attitude has changed. You know, something like um, John Banville's, um, novel about sort of English spies, the unnameable. I mean, it's, it's, it's it, it, he didn't, you know, he's not English. He didn't grow up in, you know, he didn't grow up with Burgess, Philby, Maclean and Blunt. And yet he's written this novel about that world that is absolutely incredible, an incredible work of imagination. And in order to produce it, he's had to, he's had to enter imaginatively a completely alien world. And there are lots of other writers who've done the same sort of thing. I mean, Brian Moore was probably the writer who started the process of getting to look out into the world and gave us, or one of the writers, Kate O'Brien actually also did the same thing, getting us to write about, getting us to write outside the country. In terms of publishing, um, there are now really, really, you know, exceptional publishers at work in the country. And, you know, Tramp Press, Lilliput, um, New Ireland, O'Brien, et al. They are, and there are some UK publishers who have Irish 
franchises or Irish branches, you know, they are incredibly um, necessary and agile and energetic. Thank you, Carlo. I'm looking um, on now from, say, current, current literature and, this, and, and where we are now. Have you, any of you, any projections as to what you think we might be writing about in, in, in 25 years' time? It's a hugely unfair question. Um, is, it, is it even possible to imagine where are we going to go? How will, for, will, for example, 2020, do you think, be seen as a bit of a threshold? Will, will lockdown, is that going to alter the, the trajectory of where we thought we were going? Is, that, is, is, there, is there going to be something permanent out of that? I mean, if it wasn't for lockdown, we would all be sitting here and we wouldn't be on Zoom. We would be no. literally sitting, sitting in the bar in the Irish Cultural Centre chewing the cud about the festival instead of, instead of doing it in this sort of artificial environment. Um, do you think lockdown is going to do? Do you think this whole COVID business is going to um, is going to alter our perception of, of of life in the world, or will it? Do you think we'll just move on, move on in sort of five years' time? It will just be something that will have happened. How do you think it will seep into literature? I think it will seep. If I can talk, I, I, I think Please it will do. seep into literature in the sense that it will seep into everyone's life and everyone's experience, and it become part of a collective experience. And I think that writers, no matter who they are, what age they are. They draw from that, even if they're not writing about their own time, even if they're writing imaginative fiction, they will draw from that. Uh, and I, I think, to go back to the notion of uh, a national literature, I think that if you went to the 1960s, there was possibly a sense of what constituted an Irish novel. And it was a young person in a rural environment, or possibly a small a city environment, uh, coming into contact with their sexuality, coming into conflict with clerical authority and ending up on the last page taking the boat to England with the order to follow shortly after publication. And, and there was, and that's the Country Girls and it's Goodbye to the Hill by Lee Dawn and it's all kinds of books. And, and that was the journey of people from a very stifled community, uh, a very conformist community, a community expected, expected to act a certain way. Uh, and it's in the Walter Mackens, the Bogman, and it's in all those, and they're all great books, and they're all very much of their time. I think that, and it's almost like when the Late Late Show came to Ireland, and those novels, and I'm thinking of of, of um, Eugene McCabe's The King of the Castle as well, and Ed, Edna's early books, they were like holding up this massive single mirror to a nation, and the nation looked in that mirror and ran away screaming. I think that by the time my generation came along, that mirror had fallen to the ground and shattered, and suddenly you had writers producing novels they were all intrinsically Irish, but were all intrinsically different. You'd come to Bean's debut set in uh, the Pyrenees. You had Hugo Hamilton's debut set in Berlin. You had Anne Enright's debut. You had, you, you had all these books. That, and it was almost as each was a shard of glass in that mirror reflecting a totally different Ireland. And I, I think those shards have been crunched down and crunched down and they're all different. And the great thing about literature is that it comes out of nowhere and it surprises you. I remember the Arts Council of Ireland in one of their more crazy moments some years ago tried to set up these centres of excellence and like what was going to be the centre of excellence for theatre and all these things because certain things had happened in these things. In Waterford, you had Jim Nolan setting up um, the um, theatre company down there. You, you had in Drood, you had Gary Hines and those. And these things happen almost accidentally. They cannot be predicted. They cannot be programmed. And I think that what's going to be exciting about the next 25 years of Irish literature and world literature 
if it's good, is that it's going to surprise us. It's going to knock the socks off us and we're not going to expect it. And that's what mm. I'm hoping for literature. I'm hoping that whatever's published in 20, 25 years will, will, will totally stun me. Mm-hmm. Sounds very positive. And um, Keith, would you like to say something? Yeah, I mean, I, I imagine in 25 years' time, as um, the planet survives, uh, we'll still be dealing with the consequences of climate change. And I think that COVID is the first full expression of that. Um, I've been reading a great book by, of eco-criticism by the Bengali writer uh, Amitav Ghosh, great historical fiction writer, but it's a wonderful book, The Great Derangement. Um, and he points out three fiction in the 20th century seems incapable of dealing with this crisis and that it's yielded the ground to speculative fiction and to sci-fi. And I actually have found in the last couple of years, I started, I learned how to read from reading every sci-fi book at the county library. And then, you know, I discovered Joyce and kind of fiction was the thing. I'm going back to sci-fi because they are speaking to it in, in a very interesting, non-transnational way. So I, I think it'd be interesting to see more creative responses to this and a greater crossover with genre fiction, which I think is only beginning to happen in Ireland. Um, you know, I, I think I'm been rereading Kevin Barry and I'm really enjoying the way that he's playing with with genre. But I, I think the COVID lockdown is already filtering into future writing. I mean, obviously we're conducting this on Zoom, but I've done 12 hours of teaching this week entirely remotely. And one of them is a new pilot for uh, Oxford's Department of Continuing Education. And we had students online all at once from Singapore, all over Europe, America. And, you know, those national boundaries, I think, are, are, are shifting or collapsing in, 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 in some ways. Uh, so that's interesting. And I think that the coronavirus has hastened the digital revolution in many ways. Uh, I think that's mm-hmm. intensified. How that is going to be reflected in fiction, you'll have to see. But um, either certainly it's changing the way that some of my younger students write because they're, they're, they're digital natives. Can I say something? Of course you can, Carla. First of all, I want to issue a correction. I said John Banville wrote a novel called The Unnameable. Obviously, that was Samuel Beckett. Ha! What a colossal clanger. John Banville's novel about Anthony Blunt, The Fifth Man, after Burgess Philby McLean et al., was The Untouchable. But it's very easy to get your untouchables and your unnameables mixed up <laughs> if you are a 66-year-old person like I am who has also spent his whole week teaching by Zoom. Um, it does do strange things to your brain. Um, it, it, it leaves the brain spinning like a bandsaw. It just whirs and you make mistakes. What it's going to do to the economy of writing, how it is going to affect money, in the kingdom of letters is going to be very interesting. I previously have earned the bulk of my income from personal appearances. I'm, I'm really a stand-up comic who writes <laughs> novels occasionally and, you know, reads from them in public. All that's gone. And there was an extraordinary piece by Paul McVeigh about the collapse in his income has because he does a lot of personal yep. appearances and teaching and so on that he can't you know he's lost the, the money that would have paid his mortgage for the year i have teaching there are other things i can do i have this and i think that is going to be the, the way in which writers will no longer be able to generate income from personal appearances and festivals and all the rest of it i think that's going to be catastrophic so that's a, a slightly more pessimistic view, i am I a catastrophist <laughs> You've got a book written called that, haven't you, Carla? I do. <laughs> um, 
Um, Anne, have you got anything that that you think might um, is going to that, to say that you think might um, affect how we see this in the future, or how writers see it, or what what we're going to be reading in the next sort of twenty odd years? Mm. Well, um, one thing that occurred to me when we were talking there about whether or not there is a, you know a national literature was the unheard voices that that currently exist in Irish society, and I I wasn't clear on whether or not there had been too many um, books written by immigrants to Ireland as opposed to Irish who have emigrated, which we're very familiar with, um, the voice of the travelling community, uh, that sort of thing. And it occurs to me that in a post-COVID generation of writers, there will be a lot of complexities to look at in a new world order, um, all sorts of things uh, that aren't based around gender, but the, you know, themes of isolation, inequality, poverty, the generational divide, things like that, and whether or not you know new writers in the next twenty five years will engage in 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 those complexities and the challenges that we're faced and as a society and also as individuals, whether those voices will be able to break through, given what we just said about the you know economic plight, I suppose the financial plight of of writers. Um, it's per perilous times, but uh, th those are also voices that that need to be heard. If only we had a, a crystal ball, we'd be able to sort of have a have a firmer grasp of it all. I mean, we're we're beginning to um, get run out, not run out of time just yet, but there is a, a final question that I would would love to ask all of you because. Um, we're just coming up to the Christmas period and people will be buying books. And I know that I'm hoping that um, all the authors who have contributed to the festival will, will, um, will make substantial sales from the books that we've discussed. But I'm also curious to know what um, Irish authors and books you're, you know, you're all going to be reading, um, not necessarily to recommend to our audience, but people are always interested to hear what other people are reading. So I wonder, Anne, would you mind, um, do you have, are you, have you got a, a pile of Irish authors or are you on other material at the moment? Well, um, I am really looking forward to reading Michelle's book after listening to Keith. Um, I've just managed to get hold of John Banville's book. I'm really looking forward to that. And I've also got Colin McCann's book and they're all, you know, ready to be tackled. So looking forward to those. There, that will keep you you busy for a while. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Carlo? Have you got um, a pile of Irish books in mind? Well, if it's to recommend a book for Christmas, I would like to recommend This Is Happiness by Niall Williams, um, yeah. a prophet not honoured in his own land. But um, it has, it ha you know, it's a Dickensian novel. It's large and powerful and linguistically very complex and rich. Um, it's, uh, Niall Williams is writing a series of books set in Faha. It's a sort of Zola-esque or William Faulkner-esque set of novels about one place. Faha is in uh, Clare. And This Is Happiness is, well, it's about the electrification of Ireland in the 1950s and what electricity's coming did. Ostensibly, it's about that. But it's, um, you know, it's a book written by somebody who's absolutely plugged into the canon. You know, he's read an enormous amount of the 19th and 20th century literature and is very good at creating color and character and driving the narrative forward. What am I going to read over Christmas? I think I am probably going to 
having read Snow, I think I'm going to go back to those, um, to the Benjamin Black books. I think I need thrillers, you know, which will reassure me that the world may be out of kilter, but in the end, it, the, it, it can be set right. And I need that living in these mad times. I need that kind of comfort. What about you, Dermot? What are you planning to do? I have, I, I, I always get books around six months before they're published. I have this pile of, of proof copies of books beside my bed. And I'm going to read the Colin McCann book, which I've been looking forward to. Which, when you're writing a book, you're not inclined to read a big work of fiction because you're, you're trying to keep your mind clear. So normally when I'm writing, I actually write, um, I, I mainly read nonfiction. The director of the Abbey Theatre was in my house recently and all the books behind me are all history. And all the books in the next room are all translations of my work. And he says, I get it. This is the system is in and out that yeah, I read the stuff and it comes out the other way. So uh, I actually read a lot of history, but I'm going to read um, Emma Donoghue and I'm going to read Mary Costello because the writers that I, I greatly admire. And also I'm going to read sometimes when poets go abroad, uh, poets are and neglected anyway, and they need festivals and need those appearances, Carlo mentioned, as, as some sort of life support. But there are poets like um, Sarah Berkeley and like Greg Delante, who went to America many years ago and who are essential vices in Irish writing, but are outside Ireland. And Greg Delante has a new book of poems, which is about climate change, uh, which has been published in America. And uh, that is something that is by my bed that I dip into the whole time and I usually recommend it. Thank you, Dermot. And what about you, Keith? Well, it's good to see that a slightly older generation of uh, writers are still thriving. Um, so partly because of this, I've just ordered uh, Banville Snow, Roddy Doyle's Love, and Glenn Patterson has uh, Where Are We Now? So this is for Christmas or lockdown, whichever comes first. I think lockdown may be imminent where I am. Um, Banville especially, actually, I think Carla's right, has become much more fun to read since he started writing detective novels. And I think if lockdown goes on for any length of time, I'll be back to Benjamin Black, which is, uh, it, it conjures up a great sense of, of that time, of 1950s Ireland, that mm. seemed to have mm. put behind us. Mm. Um, I'm also looking forward to the publication next year. A friend of mine, Una Mania, the debut novel, A Crooked Tree, is being published by Faber, which is exciting. Um, there's a strong tradition of writing in my native Sligo, so I'm always keen to champion writers from outside of the pale. So uh, that's one to look out for. Well, I think we've chewed the cud pretty well um, in the last hour or so, and it only really remains for me to thank each and every one of you for before um, participating in the Literary Festival. If we didn't have interviewers to interview authors, then we wouldn't be able to, to host events such as these. So thank you all of you so much for... Can I just say, on behalf of the writers, that if we didn't have people like you to make these festivals happen <laughs> online... Uh, as I say, like Carlo, these festival appearances, these things added the mortar between the bricks of my creative practice. There's a small, I'm not a man who gets big checks, I get small checks, and those small checks go to buy time to write. And people like, like the Ivy Centre doing these festivals and still giving a platform to writers is usually important. So I, I, I don't think you should anyway underestimate the great value that you give in your work and everybody in the centre as well. Here, here. Here, here. <laughs> yeah, that's that's very kind of you. But anyway, thank thank you all, and I I do want to say a special thank you to Carlo up there because Carlo, you did help me curate this, and um, and I'm very appreciative of you putting me in contact with 
with one or two people, including your good self down there, Dermot. So I, that's a special thank you to you. And um, thank you to the audience. Thank you all for tuning in. And I hope you enjoyed the sessions um, individually. And maybe you'll go back to see some more of them. And um, we certainly will be back in the new year with some future literary events. So thank you very much for joining us. Good night, all. Thank you. Bye-bye. Yes. Thank you. Um,